Welcome to tonight's special event at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, editor of Digital Arts Magazine, Neil Bennett. Hi, I'm Neil. I'm as I said, the uh, editor of Digital Arts. We're the UK's leading site for professional creatives across all digital disciplines, which basically just means we write about awesome things that are being done with technology, art, and, and design. So uh, we're here tonight to talk about uh, youthful thinking. So uh, just to kind of introduce our, uh, our panel here, we've got Ajaz Ahmed, uh, who founded and built AKQA into the world's most awarded digital agency that employs 1,600 people worldwide. It's a, AKQA is a constant innovator, creating digital products, services, and experiences for brands from Delta to Nike. Got uh, yeah, Michael Wolf, who is a design industry icon. He not only did he co-found the advertising agency Wolf Hollins, but went on to be a land, uh, sorry, a leading brand consultant and speaker around the world. And uh, Ian Morton, who uh, you know is a creative director at uh, AKQA. But it's also uh, somebody I first met uh, back when he was uh, still a student, when a graduate film uh, arrived on my desk called Solar that uh, was far better than anything any student should ever have been able to create. Uh, since then, he's uh, gone on to develop the uh, best-selling 20-minute meals iOS app for uh, Jamie Oliver. He's been an art director at Soho ba uh, Post House The Mill, and uh, he's uh, written the book that's brought us all here tonight. So. Uh, no, just to kick things off, Ian, uh, you know, why did you want to write the book? Um, yeah, no, great question. Actually, one of, the, one of the more stupid things I've done, actually, in my career. Um, but it's actually, it's, um, it's a combination of several things. I mean, first of all, um, the fact that I've, it's good fortune, the fact I've been able to work with, in my opinion, at least, some of the world's best creatives and teams, um, like Ajars and AKQA, for example. But the realization that all, kind of all the best work that I've, been involved in over the past 10 years, um, both either successfully in, in the commercial sense or just in, in my opinion, because I love doing it, has been a product of youthful thinking. Um, and that's combined with the fact that now, I mean, even today, I'm kind of acutely aware that I police my creativity far more than I did when I was 16, when I was doing kind of my first client work or, or when I did the short film um, with my good friend Ed Shires. Um, and really, I just, I kind of wanted to write a book to, to help me understand that better, to try and, try and figure it out, um, and kind of to hold myself accountable, actually, for the rest of my career. Because all these things, youthful thinking, in my opinion, is something of kind of supreme and commanding influence to our creativity. So um, I wanted to help youngsters, but you know, also just, just really try and figure it out and, and help get the best out of the rest of my career. And just to kind of open up to, to the other guys, I mean, how important do you think it is for people in your position to, to pass on what they've learned to, to, to a wider audience, to, you know, to, to help inspire the next generation to be better and the opening you know, kind of students to, be, you know, to, to aspire to want to be you? I never do anything except pass on what I think I know at any one time. I mean, all my work is passing on some opinions that I've formulated or some thoughts that I've had um, I never stop doing it, and whether I'm talking to somebody I've never met before on a train or <laughs> when you come around and see me, or to a client or whatever, it never stops. You're always just talking to people, and you're talking to people about what's going on in your mind, what you're thinking about, and what you want to do. Never stops. I think the other, th the other thing for me is that we're actually kind of really blessed in this industry. So in any, any creative discipline, in any company, we're not we're not governed by rules or laws or 
kind of any kind of legislation like that in the same way you know like the health industry or, or law or you know finance or whatever we're we're lucky that we're we're effectively governed by stories you know we we pick the stories that resonate with us and they they inspire our work and and we ignore the ones that that don't resonate with us which is which is fine as well you know um, so it's kind of like we're like duty bound I think just to pass on these stories and that's that's the that's the point of the book there's no no psychology, no science. It's just a collection of stories, um, and some of them are kind of daft. That you know, mine in particular, and then others that are kind of beautifully inspiring and, and full of wisdom from you know Michael and Giles and Nick Park and all these other people. Sorry, I'm not interrupting you. When I had one of my daughters was eight and lived in a street in Kentish Town called Kelly Street, we walked up and down both sides of the street looking at each number and each letterbox and discussing why we thought it was the way it was, uh, why somebody might have chosen that particular color for their door, why that particular numeral. She must have been eight. And that was her introduction to typography, really. That's how it works. And it's, it's getting those people to ask those kind of questions that formulates their understanding of how these things work, and then they can use their creative skills to yeah. build upon that. Okay, so to, to, to move on to your book then, um, I suppose the, the first thing we should do is when we talk about useful thinking is you know, define our terms. So uh, you know, what, what is useful thinking? So useful thinking for me, it's actually really simple. It's, it's based on the inherent useful characteristics of youth that everyone has. I think we are born with them. Um, it's just that for whatever reason, as we go through careers or we go through kind of our lives in general, we there are certain invisible things that creep into our lives and they, they do it really insidiously so you don't really notice them and it's usually through no fault of our own but these things um, tend to be to the detriment of our creativity um, and, and youthful thinking in my opinion uh, is certainly not always the case but youthful thinking is just a way for us to kind of establish stories um, to to remind us of, of, the, of these useful characteristics so like things Things like the ability to wonder and you know to fantasize and embellish things and you know get carried away um, and it sounds cheesy but to believe anything is possible you know and the, the trouble is all of those things don't really form part of our vernacular because they sound silly um, which is a shame because they're all incredibly useful. I mean, you define it as kind of embrace the ridiculous. Is there something? I mean, is there something that you guys would would agree with as well? <laughs> I don't know if it's ridiculous or not, but listening to you talking about wonder there, I mean, I find myself wondering, not wondering, wondering about how amazing a glass with water in it is, that both water and glass are transparent, and how miraculous that is, and to sort of forget the miracles that we see in our ordinary lives. I mean, eating an orange, unpeeling an orange, the texture of an orange, how it's white when you open it, the pith around it, that it breaks into segments, the smell of it, the taste of it. I mean, to, to push appreciation in the way that we had it when we were four, maybe three, five, and to keep that sort of um, almost pressure of appreciation up, I think for me is what you write about. To me, that's keeping your childish curiosity and your childish appreciation f with you forever, really. Would you say that you're, you know, you've always had a kind of childlike appreciation of the world? Has that driven you know, your need to create as well? I think it's just this um, optimism. So I think one of the things when people are young 
is they, they're, they're not old enough to be kind of damaged by the world. So they kind of have this positive spirit and optimism. And I think if you can carry on having that positive energy and, and contribute, that, that's what kind of keeps everything moving forward. Yeah, <clears throat> I think, um, I mean, I can give you an example. This, this, in my opinion anyway, applies to business in, in quite a big, big respect. I mean, assume I have two ideas in front of me. And idea one is, is based on precedent. So all the things that we know in our lives, so etiquette and logic uh, and rationality. So I, if I go with this idea, then I, I'm, I'm almost certain that it's going to work because it worked 10 times before. But in my other hand, I've got an idea which is completely illogical and they're completely irrational, um, but it's exciting. Now, what's easy to happen is that you know, the, the, the idea that's based on precedent, if it fails, then my back is covered because at least I can say, well, it worked all those times before. Uh, the trouble is that will just be at the cost of innovation more often than not, not always. Uh, and the other idea is, is the one that might reveal potential. So I think you know, creativity to me is to have an unpoliced mind. And I think all these things that effectively just add up to self-control you know, as we go through our careers um, can hamper that to some respect. And how do you kind of engender that in people then? If, if you're, you know, you're dealing with creatives who are, go, who are people who maybe think, oh, this has always worked before, how do you encourage them to experience and kind of in, you know, embrace the kind of you know, way of thinking that you're, you're talking about? Or is it inherent in all creatives to be that kind of boundary-pushing person? Okay. <laughs> well, I just think you connect people back with the kind of experience they're having. I'll give you an example of it. I don't know if I'm completely unique in this way. I don't believe that I am. But when I put my credit card into an ATM and it says remove card, I always kind of think it's telling me to get out, to remove myself in a funny kind of way. And then I wonder why it doesn't say enjoy your money and don't forget your card. <laughs> because that's what I would like it to say. And I don't like remove card. And I don't like thousands of mini incidents of careless talk or thoughtless instructions that happen all the time. And I think it's, it's sort of, if you have, you're talking, if you have a, a kind of curiosity that never stops, that makes you wonder, and you can share it with people. I mean, I work for a, a bank in Russia, and um, simply pointing out what this ATM is saying to the man who was responsible for the ATM, of course, he immediately gets it. People aren't idiots. You know, people understand, I think, opportunities if you point out their potential. Always. And you mentioned kind of curiosity then, and it's kind of, you know, do you have to be curious about everything, or as a creative person, is there ways to harness the direction of your curiosity to help you enhance the, the things that you're actually creating? So I think in, um, one of the great things about the era that we live in today is that the big don't necessarily displace the small, but the simple will always displace the complex. And I think that's one of the great things that youthful thinking also provides is that just this simplicity and this purity and this kind of organic way of thinking about things. And I think as long as you kind of have that curiosity and as long as you're trying to create something and contribute something beautiful that, that makes a difference and, and solves problems, I think that's, that's when the most powerful ideas are born. 
And do you need to motivate yourself to be curious, or can you? Will it work? You know, is it something that has to be sort of come as a wellspring from inside you naturally? I just think it's something that we have. I think um, if you're unfortunate as a kid, you're educated out of it. Um, and to Michael's point, you know about the orange. I mean, he used that example in the book, and it's brilliant. And I, I have to admit, when I when I heard Michael say that, I I kind of took it for granted immediately, and then I went home and I reread it, and I thought I'm an idiot because I just passed over, and it. it was a brilliant thing to say. But I mean, just to come back to the, the idea of how you create those circumstances for others, that I mean, we have to look at what happens when you try and be creative. So there's there's two effectively possible outcomes: it works, the idea that you had works, or it doesn't work, and you look a bit foolish. You know, you look a bit silly, and um, and part of part of what we have to do is create an environment where people aren't afraid to look silly, or you know, where where it's encouraged. And this isn't about failure yet. I know that that might come up later, but it's just about we're all free to just kind of have this playful wonder, uh, and the best companies do it. And that's arguably why I'm at AKQA. You know, and there's and there's other brilliant ones as well. Would you guys like to come in on that? Or? I was going to like, if you have a look at one of the characteristics that organizations that kind of endure for decades, they look at innovation as an experiment with unknown outcomes. So they look at everything they do as an experiment. I think that's one of the great characteristics of entrepreneurs or scientists or anyone who, who's trying to create new territory is you have to look at it as an experiment. And when you look at something as an experiment, it's not a success or a failure. You're going to get learnings from it regardless. So, And the learnings from innovation experiments just make you a better decision maker about what to try next time. And I think until that thinking gets transmitted across everything, it will, it will, it will encourage fewer people to kind of want to experiment. So I think it's, it's, it's important that people don't look at when they're trying something new, not to think of it as a success or a failure, but to think of it much more as an experiment that you don't know the outcomes yet. And those outcomes will help them make a better decision maker for the long term. I think it's going on right now. You know, for example, I've no idea really what I'm going to say. And I know that I might say some very silly things, but I'm not going to try and stop being silly. Because if I try and control what I'm saying, or anticipate your questions, um, I'm going to be in bad trouble. So I'm just sitting here in front of some people that I don't know, um, quite prepared to be silly or say things that I don't really mean. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> But on a practical level, how does that work in a kind of you know studio environment? I mean, is it a case where how do you balance that need to experiment Sorry, with your I, client's wishes? I've always found it honestly. I've always found it the same, because I've always believed that what is called a brief is somebody's best shot at what they want. My sense of giving people what they want is that's risking disappointment, because actually what people want is what they can't imagine. That's why they've come to you. So they're trying to give you some guidance so you don't come back with complete nonsense, but sometimes you do. So I think, um, here we are, I can't even remember what I started. I'm getting towards the middle of the sentence and I don't know what the end's gonna be. But I mean, I, I think it's, uh, what was the question? <laughs> it's, it's whether you can do this kind of stuff live with clients. Yes, you can. You absolutely can, because clients are just people. They're just people. And you know, all you ever have with a client is a conversation. 
And there seems to be a lot of interest, though, in taking these kind of product projects and working on them live in, you know, in, not just in front of a client, but in front of their customers as well. You know, people are creating digital prototypes of projects which they develop on the fly as live on-site things. Can you be as experimental with those kind of projects as you can be when you're just literally in the safe environment of a relatively safe environment of a pitch room? Yes, yeah, so you mentioned AKQA's got 1,600 people, but none of us think of it as one organization with 600 people. We just see it as a, a collection of teams and startups where people share the same values. And I think the most important value of any of the people who work at AKQA is everyone wants to contribute a work of art. And that's our best work, is always something that's artful and beautiful and has this sense of humanity and fixes a problem. And I think when we're doing that, everyone appreciates it. You know, the, the clients obviously love it, the audiences love it, and, you know, and, our, and our team loves it as well. And that's, that's where the true motivation comes, when you've solved a problem and you've contributed something, something beautiful to society which kind of progresses humanity. I think that's, that's certainly the aspiration that any creative company should have. And just to add to that, I mean, my, my perspective is that I'm, while I'm incredibly fortunate to be at organizations where that kind of curiosity and that experimentation is allowed, I, day in, day out, whenever I speak to young creatives, or you know, even, even not so young, I mean, more and more I hear that they don't have the freedom to do that in their organizations, uh, be it client-related or managerially-related, you know, whatever. But what I often kind of, and I, I know because I've experienced this myself, is that the, some of the best work people do is when they go home and start their second job, you know, and it's and it's a sad world that we live in when that has to happen. But um, I mean, two of the best things I've done have been kind of out of hours, out of hours work because you get you get the freedom. Um, so my, kind of my argument in the book is to be aware of the circumstances when you're not being allowed to to explore. Uh, I think the world that we live in now, the, we, we talk about specialisations in the book and. Um, you know, we hear all the time, do one thing and do it well, and I, I couldn't disagree with that more, actually, in this age, because when we have to adapt to things so quickly, when we, I mean, I have no idea the next product that's going to come in this fantastic store, nor does anyone else, really, a very select group of people, and we need to be willing to be able to move quick enough and adapt to a new skill set, and the only way we can do that is we explore our creative breadth. I think if you're denied that, you're, you're just kind of diminishing your value to yourself and your organization. I was going to say, if you guys got advice for how to deal with that, you know, that client that doesn't give you the creative breadth that uh, you know, is so important to, uh, to this. Well, we're super lucky at AKQA. The, the clients that choose us are clients that want to innovate and, and make progress. So I think we don't know a world where the clients don't want to kind of push boundaries and don't want to progress. But I think the other characteristic that's true of our clients and organizations that endure is a counterbalance creativity and experimentation with operational excellence and great systems. And it's when those two collisions take place that amazing things happen. And have you ever kind of turned down a client or, or fired a client for, uh, for not giving you the scope that you, that you want from a, pro from a project or from an ongoing relationship? I think, um, again, we're very lucky that um, we, we get huge demand. And at the end of the day, we're problem solvers. And so what we have to do is we have to inspire, inspire a solution and help our clients get to 
either unlock an opportunity or solve a, a problem in a beautiful way. And, and that's really what inspires us. I, I love the way you talk about beauty, actually. Because, I mean, I've had countless difficult relationships. You know, I can't say that all my relationships just work beautifully. I've had difficult relationships. But I, I don't think in terms of clients, that's number one. I think in terms of people with whom I find mutual respect and the capacity to move forward together. And if that doesn't work, it's like any other relationship. It's not particularly different because it's a working relationship. It's like any relationship. You don't get on with everybody. And if you find you don't get on very well with somebody, you usually sort of drift away from them. And so I have drifted away from clients here, there, and everywhere. But I've also been very fortunate to have clients that I find myself attracted to and the attraction is mutual. And then you find you can work really easily with them. And it's just like any other aspect of life. I don't think of my um, relationships with the people that I work with as any different from any other relationships, really. And, and do you find that when you know, that relationship is breaking down, when it comes to end that relationship, yeah. it's generally mutual because the, you're not getting the kind of inspirational work you know, to, out of them and they're vice versa not getting the, the same you know, kind of yeah, I of think love out I of you. honestly think it's always been mutual. I can't remember the expression you used. I can't remember firing a client. I can't remember being surprised by a client firing me or anybody who worked for me. It's just you realize that it is, you know, you're not suited to each other. It's not, it's not a relationship that's worth struggling with. You might as well, you know, there are an infinite number of people who want work done for them. There are an infinite number of people like us who do work for people. So if you find it isn't working very well, just move on. And you th have you always had this mindset, or is it something that, you know, we've talked about this in the context of it being youthful thinking, but is no. it something that's contained, you've had all your life? No, it's not. I've not always had this mindset. I've gone through periods of fear, um, of extreme self-consciousness, of not wanting to be wrong, of not wanting to be seen wrong. I mean, I think everybody goes through all of that. But you learn to, you learn pretty early on that you can't be driven by what people think of you. You know, because otherwise you end up um, gibbering. Jaz, <laughs> uh, would you, you agree with that? Is this something that's always been close to you, or has it been time, you know, something you've learned over the years? Has useful thinking come with experience to coin a. I think it comes things? back to that positivity and that optimism and that yearning to contribute something magnificent. And I think if you put all your energy into the work, and you become obsessed with the details that make it perfect, that everything else just disappears. And, and that's, that's the obsession that I think drives the most creative people. And in terms of the other things that have affected you, as, you know, that helped led you to the positions that you're in, as, you know, this kind of useful thinking is one part of it, but it's also been a value in terms of mentorship and people that you've learned from, that have, you've, you have acquired these skills from? Yeah, so I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book which is about <clears throat> learning and picking the sources to learn from. Uh, and my opinion is like the person who can't stay coachable is the person who quickly loses relevance in the world around them. Um, and there are, there are a few great places to, to, to learn from, a few good sources. One of them is kind of education if you're lucky. I was lucky in my education. Um, another one is mentors, you know, and a mentor is there, you know, if not to produce a mini-me version of them, you know, but to offer impartial, unbiased advice. 
Um, and my career, I mean, Agiles is one of them. You know, he might not know it, but he is one of them. And um, and uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm the the advice that you get is is kind of incalculable in terms of its value. I think. Is that something been the same for for you guys as well? I think we all um, have people or organisations that are kind of our hero companies and that we look at, you know, I think when you find an organization that does something the best of its kind in the world, you, you want to you wanna learn from that. And I think it's one of the great privileges of our roles is we get to travel a huge amount. So the amount you can learn in, in, in countries all over the world, you know, like, if, so if you go to Japan, the, the amount of craftsmanship that goes into almost everything is something that everyone can can learn from and i think it's a great privilege and, and then bringing that learning and putting it into our dna to strengthen our dna and make it much stronger is is, is what we try and do so i think we all we all look at organizations and and take the best we can from them just to make our own DNA as, as strong as it possibly can be. And, and, and so we can keep contributing great work and keep pushing things forward. Yes, I mean, I've stood on the shoulders of, of masters all my life. And some of them are people who don't consider themselves to be masters. And you talk about Japan. I learned about 120 shades of white in Japan. I never knew that existed. But you learn, you learn from just moments you know, I, I never under, under really appreciated the power of language and writing until I, I surrendered to reading. You know, when I was young, I didn't. I was very lazy. I found reading an effort I didn't want to make. You know, but when, once I surrendered to it, I, even today I can read uh, Marquez, the, the Love in the Time of Cholera, and be absolutely, I can't, uh, the word inspired isn't sufficiently strong for what happens. I just feel, my God, I'm in the presence of something so extraordinary that I would never learn that, but something happens to me in the face of it. And I find that, for example, going to Mexico and seeing how people use color in, in Mexico, and you just think, God, I, I, I don't understand how to use color in that way. And it can be somebody just the way they dress, just some ordinary person dressed in a way that you think, I didn't think that was possible. So I think that um, you, you talk about coachable. I think it's, it's more than that. I think it's, it's to be able to be open to see things you've never seen before or appreciated before at all times. And I don't think, you know, I'm 80. So it happens to me every day. It's not something that I've left behind me. And it's something that I know will be with me. I, I, I hate to say I'm looking forward to dying because it's not true. But there'll be something to learn. There, there is no way of not learning. There is, there's no way of not learning. I suppose in essence, then, it's not to be put off or to be scared by the brilliance of others, but to be, to be inspired by them. Yeah. Well, that's it. And the, the, something really bizarre can happen. I mean, this, you know, when we see someone who is at the top of their game or an organization at the top of their game, you know, we, see, we do this really bizarre thing a lot of the time. We see the finished article. We see the final thing. And what we hardly ever see um, is the process that got them there yeah, the or, the, or the process that keeps them there. It's either camouflaged or, or hidden altogether. And it's, it's just this really bizarre trick we play on ourselves that we think this level is unattainable or that they are some kind of 
ungodly kind of you know amazing thing and the reality is we're all winging it you know none of us know what we're doing i certainly don't know what i'm doing i, I can't no. speak from you know the, the rest of the people <laughs> on the panel but i mean we are all just completely bumbling along and if we stop trying to get better if we think there's a finished version of ourselves somewhere yes. on the horizon yeah, it doesn't exist. then then there's no fun in that. The alternative is you're never finished and kind of possibilities are endless. You know, isn't that far more exciting? I had an experience the other day, actually, in the British Museum, which where I wasn't expecting to have any kind of experience, really. Well, I should have been, but I wasn't. And um, there was a, a, um, a cabinet in the Oriental Room, and there were four white bowls in this cabinet. And the caption said something about the date of this bowl, which was something like, I don't know, 800 or something, and it said invisible pattern. And I was completely, I didn't understand what it was talking about. I was completely perplexed by it. And I stared at this bowl. And honestly, I stared at it for about three or four minutes, and I suddenly saw the dragon going round inside the porcelain. So that was a question of, what do they mean, invisible pattern? I don't believe it. I'm going to just walk straight past it, or I'm going to be patient and look at it and see somehow as if something reveals itself to me. And that happens to me quite a lot in all sorts of areas of life. Wait, pause, let it speak to you, don't know better than it, and suddenly it will reveal itself to you. And I find that in conversation sometimes with people. I mean, I wasn't expecting you to talk about the value of creating beauty as your inspiration. I find that, you know, I've learned something from you this evening. I, I know that already, but I've learned it. And sometimes I think what you know, you need to relearn. And it can happen just like that. <coughs> yeah. Okay, and uh, so I suppose the, you know, sorry, I'm just uh, checking through, because we've, we've, we've kind of hopped backwards and forwards from, uh, from the structure that we kind of, we, <laughs> when we sat down and worked through this, going, oh, here's the subjects we're going to talk about today, and we've kind of, you know, uh, kind of bumble backwards and forwards and, you know, uh, and come through them. But I think there's one thing that we, when we were talking about, you know, positive, about youthful thinking being a very, very positive thing, there is also on the other side a very serious question, which is, is it just an excuse not to be self-critical? Is it an excuse just to jump in and go, well, this is the first thing that I thought of, it must be right. I don't think it is. No, I mean, I if we talk about, if we go back to the idea of failure, so I have this huge gripe with failure conversations currently. So there's this really bizarre lexicon from Silicon Valley, which is, you know, fail fast and fail hard and, and all those just absolute piece of gibberish. And I don't, and the, the, the trouble is they almost celebrate failure in a really bizarre way. Um, there's nothing celebratory about failure. It hurts like hell. Um, the point is that it, it's not the opposite of success. That's that's the kind of point. But in my the point I'm making is that in failure is is part of the process. So in my opinion, at least, creativity is not just having the idea. It's having the mental resolve to see a problem through until it's finished, to be able to come to a solution without settling for mediocrity. And it's the and if you can weather that constant internal dread of not having the right answer for, for a decent amount of time, chances are you'll come with something great. But in that, there's a lot of failure. Um, and in other industries, it's not so much of an issue. If you take kind of venture capital, you know, typically around 15% of investments make 90% of the return. So you know, in that, there's a, there's a ton of return, but there's also a lot of failure. Um, I think that, that, to me, is more, is more what I mean about it. 
Yeah, I think that idea of failure is just inherent to the scientific process. There's a story that Professor Stephen Jones, the geneticist, talked when he was, you know, a teenager working in a factory, um, and they were trying to, you know, create soap bubbles. Uh, so, sorry, folk, soap flakes of exactly the right size, and they couldn't work out how to do it. They couldn't. They had, you know, some of the world's leading kind of, you know, physicists and engineers working on producing a nozzle which would create perfectly sized flakes, and they just couldn't do it. So, in the end, they just went, okay, let's make ten of these and pick the two that work the best and try ten variations of those. And try ten. It was purely evolutionary. There was no, yeah, there was no, there was no scientific thinking behind. They just kept trying and kept experimenting. But sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. I have conversations of fail sometimes, but once the conversation's happened, you can't redo it. So there are some things that you just have to accept. You failed, and you learn something from it. And but once um, you've called Paul Holland's an advertising agency, you can't really get no, back no, from that, no. can you? <laughs> well, we can. Yeah, we can record. Can. We can re-record no, it no, at the I end. I completely forgive you. I mean, sort of. Simple mistake. <laughs> okay, enough of my failures. Now on to, on to yours. Um, but in terms of, you know, failures is something, failure is the wrong word, but what have been the, the biggest learning experiences and the things that haven't quite gone to plan for, for, for you three, which you've turned around and gone, actually, I've really got something out of this? You were talking about... Um gut feelings and trusting your gut and the founder of apple at the stanford commencement speech said something along the lines of don't let the noise of other people's opinions drown out your inner voice it somehow knows what you want to be and i think if i think about the mistakes that i've made you know in the career that i've been lucky enough to have it's always been when i haven't trusted my gut or where I have allowed other people's opinions, which I didn't quite feel were correct to drown out my, my inner voice. So I think, if anything, I've learned that your intuition and your gut really does somehow know what, what, what you want to be. And if your motivation is to contribute something beautiful and something that progresses humanity and something that solves problems, and you're truly honest with yourself about that and you truly listen to your your gut you'll end up creating something that can be quite magical just to add to that as well i mean um kind of in my opinion creatives have an obligation to put their ideas into practice um especially young creatives because that's how industries economies organizations move forward you know idea an idea is just the beginning of the story i think too often we let fear of failure stop us from pursuing them um i think it's a real shame when you think about all like the unpublished novels or all the all the books that never got finished and you were talking about you know what are examples of failure for me the amount of people that didn't want to hear from me when i said i've written a book i mean i i can't fit all the publishers on on you know on my fingers i can't there's just there's so many um and a few of them were actually really rude and just said, don't be daft, you've never written a book before, why would we care? You know, and, and the thing is, you just ignore the naysayers. You know, just don't give up. If you, if you really give a damn about what you're trying to do, then just don't stop. I'm, I'm somewhere slightly different from this because I will pursue something till the end of time if I think it's right. 
but I might suddenly find that I don't think it's right. Because somebody will convince me in some way or other that actually I'm being stubborn, actually I've, I've attached myself to an idea that I've had, fallen in love with it, see that it's flawless from my perspective, and it's like a balloon, and somebody just pops it with a pin, it's gone. And so sometimes you just have to accept that you were wrong gracefully, um, because you were. Okay, well, one, one last question before we, we open, up to, uh, up, up, open up to the audience then. Um, it's kind of, um, we've talked about youthful thinking as being something which requires you know, experimenting, putting yourself out there. It's something which is very easy for people to do when they're younger, when they don't have the ties of family, they don't, ne well, don't necessarily have you know, a mortgage they've got to pay. It's, very much, it's, it's just a whole lot easier to go, you know what, I can, I can take that risk. But how do you keep that thinking going when you are wondering, well, actually, I've still got to make, you know, I must not fail. I must make sure that I can pay the bills and, you know, do all, all the things that we need to do to run our own lives. That's a really, really tough question to answer because I remember um, one situation where we lost three projects and had to lose a third of the people who were working for us. And, you know, I've never been so conscious of people's mortgages, of the responsibility of employing people, um, and being on this fulcrum of, uh, look, if we let this run, we'll keep our people, we'll keep the project, but we'll compromise our integrity. And I only remember being in that situation really acutely once. And we decided to reduce the size of our company and stick by our principles. And I think if we hadn't have done, the whole nature of the company would have changed forever. And we, you know, we, we did um, interesting things in terms of how we helped everybody that we lost to move on properly. We, we, we didn't just say goodbye to them. We, we, we learned a lot about how to deal with the situation of having to shrink a company. But if we hadn't have done it, I don't think we'd have stayed the same. So there, there are moments where you have to take a risk, and you take it. But it's, it's understanding that you have this sense of responsibility, not yeah. only for yourself, but for those you, people you're employing. And the future people you employ as well. I think there's one word that's super important um, in, 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 this, in this question, and that word is respect. Yeah. And I think if agencies have respect for their clients, and they have respect for their clients' audiences. And the people who work at the agencies have respect for the work they're producing and respect for themselves and respect for their colleagues. Then it's extraordinary the great things that can happen. And I think when there's a breakdown in that respect, whether it's the respect for the audience or respect for the, for the client or the respect for the work um, or, or respect for the employee, that's when you, you get um, the, you know, the issues and, and, and having that, that pure motivation about contributing something wonderful and having respect for, for everyone you work with and, and, and everyone you're producing it for is, is what pushes things forward. I guess the flip side of all this, because there are two brilliant answers, is to, if I am speaking to the younger people, is say, do it now because it's a lot easier, you know, and the too, I think too many creatives kind of want to wait their turn, um, which I think is a shame because a lot of young creatives have far more value to add 
than they perhaps might think they do. And the point isn't to deceive or you know, to kind of embezzle away into a company, it's to just to realize that every young person has value to add and waste as little time as possible making things that you don't want to be known for. And how do you engender that kind of feeling within, within a company? Again, I think um, you, you have to have a sense of core values that permeate through every aspect of the organization and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a sense of purpose that, again, every employee you know, believes in. And if you, you also have to know what you're in conflict with. And I think that's an important aspect of any organization that endures, is knowing what you're in conflict with. So our organization, we're in conflict with mediocrity. And so we're, we're in, co in conflict with um, complexity. We're in, in, in conflict with vulgarity. So when you're in conflict with those things, you, your whole motivation is to create something that's pure and, and beautiful and you know, audiences absolutely love and, and get motivated by and, and, and want more of. And, that, and that's what we try to create. But I think you have to have this obsession with every aspect of the organization to make that happen. And I think as soon as you let your guard down on any, on any aspect, it kind of goes wrong. But it's also important to, um, you know, again, another great quote from, from Steve Jobs is, you know, he mentions stay hungry. But there's another counterbalance to that, which is stay foolish. And it is that chilling out and it is that kind of sense of fun um, the, the, you know, in humanity the, that brings everything together. I think how you get it to permeate, how you get everyone to believe you mean it, is to look at all the details, which I'm sure you do, of the business you're running. I mean, we, we were concerned with the quality of food that we ate, very concerned with it. In fact, sometimes the food that we ate was better than the work that we did. We were concerned with the quality of our toilets. We were concerned with the quality of our welcome. We, was, we were so self-conscious about every interaction that we had amongst ourselves and with the people that we worked for, that you could, you just felt it in the fiber of the company. You just felt it. And I, you know, if I go in and see a design company and go into the bathroom and it's not conscious and it's not been designed to work for people who are handicapped or whatever it is, if, if it's an unconscious, sloppy piece of self-expression, I know that that company hasn't taken its potential to where it, it ought to, and where it probably believes it does, but it but we f we fail. You I know, suppose we kind of we we you know we, we all, you guys all you work for companies which help create amazing experiences on behalf of brands, and if you, if you can't create an amazing experience for your creative workforce yeah. in the in the in the environment that they work in, that's how exactly can you right. do that for, for no, clients? that's right. You have to be the yeah. opposite of corporate. Yeah. You have to be human. And, and that's where the characteristics like staying foolish and staying hungry, you know, come from. And just go back to your point about respect. I mean, it's also about respecting those younger individuals and giving them the scope to experiment and do those kind of crazy things because they're not just going, well, you're a junior, you know, shut up and listen to the, to the seniors, the MD to the... Well, I think, whoever. again, like the best organisations are meritocratic. So it's about, you know, the people who contribute the most are the ones who who should you know if they want to you know advance the most and that and that it shouldn't it shouldn't be just because someone's has huge longevity 
in the organization that they're given you know all the all the, you know all the benefits it's about who makes the biggest contribution who's pushing things forward who who's who's driving progress and and i think that's that's what the you know, best organizations are meritocratic organizations rather than resting on their laurels and and wallowing in nostalgia but actually you know everyone knows the expression i imagine most people know the expression the whole is greater than the sum of the parts that something happens with a whole which is bigger than the sum of the parts but it's actually only through the parts that the whole gets delivered so that's why the parts are a representation of the whole. That's why I find, for example, the expression the creatives and the uh, account people and all that, something foolish in it. Because, you know, someone who happens to be answering the phone for a company is at the moment when they answer it, is the company, is the whole company. That person, there is no unimportant person in a company. So, uh, you know, uh, so many hierarchies are really stupid because they discount the value of moments and points of contact. And it's points of contact and moments where you make your appreciation up, where you invent it. One of the things that inspires me about AKQA the most, and it always has, because uh, I've, I've kind of admired AKQA for the past seven or so, eight or so years, is that we always have this, I think we still use it, we, we, the, the future inspires us, we work to inspire. And when, I mean, Agile says it brilliantly, but when we say the future inspires us, we don't just mean the next bit of technology, we mean the next generation of talent. Yeah. And if we don't give them a platform to excel, if we don't give them the opportunity to astound everyone and themselves, then we will forever perhaps rely on the status quo because youngsters just see things differently. And, if, and that's where youthful thinking comes in. If you can attribute that throughout a career, then you're going to be valuable throughout a career. But yeah, giving that, you know, people don't shine the spotlight enough on, on youngsters for doing smart or honorable things. Um, great companies do, and I think we should need to do more of it. Excellent. Well, let's uh, open up some questions. Has anyone got uh, questions you want to ask our, our panel? Hi, I'm Anika from Metal and Digital. And I just wanted to ask if there's any tips and tricks for like day-to-day -day stuff to keep the spark for the fire live, you know, that. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> so, um, so just, you know, the things that you kind of have to remind yourself every day to, you know, make sure you look up at the buildings, the top of the buildings, you know, that someone who doesn't have that mindset, I do, um, kind of can remind themselves every day, too. Um, well, you'll have to read the book, but there's, no, there's, um, so the, my, my main ones are, um, one that we haven't covered is habit. So, I mean, me and Michael had a chat about this in the book about habit and how habit can, um, I mean, you could argue that Michael's desire to be curious has become a habit for him, which is great. But there are certain habits that we do that are the opposite of creativity. So for example, um, and the reason why is because we do them on autopilot. So for example, the commute to work, you know, your morning dress routine, all of those things you do on autopilot to kind of conserve energy. Um, the trouble is it can also creep into everything we do creatively. Um, you know, we hope that our creativity is a bit more dynamic than our commute to work, for example, you know, and, and we just need to be mindful of the things that, uh, and you know, Michael's talking about this as well, it's, you know, how do we dissect a brief? Do we do it over and over again? Is it the same way, you know, and, and it's just, some habits are great, but 
just being aware of kind of what we do just on autopilot is a is a big help for me actually. And even when I you know when I brief my team or when we sit down together, it does start to become formulaic. And I think actually that's not where creativity comes from. I mean, there was a, I've been writing short films with my good friend Ed in university pretty much since we graduated, and we were completely stuck on one story, so much so we thought we'd have to pretty much abandon it, um, because all we were doing was we would get, meet up, we would sit down together and go, right, how do we solve this problem? And it would be the same thing over and over again. We never got to a solution. And Ed emailed me one day, and he said um, the email was um, telling a story exam. And then he listed four questions, and he said, notes, uh, all answers must be written on black or white lined paper, marks out of 25. And I thought that was hilarious. You know, I thought, what a brilliant way to frame the problem. And because it was so vastly different, not habitual in any way, um, I spent the next half an hour running around trying to find some black and white lined paper. And I wrote all my answers, not really thinking consciously, scanned them and sent them back to him. And every answer I wrote pretty much solved all our, all our problems and the, that short film's in production. And it's just reframing the way we do things over and over again can, can produce a great outcome. I, I think I can probably count on the fingers of one hand where someone has written to a receptionist and said, I thought you answered the phone fantastically that day. That was an absolute inspiration. So I think the failure that we have to appreciate tiny acts through every day turns down the volume of caring passionately. So um, I think one of the, the roles of leaders is to create leaders around them and to create leaders right down to or right up to or right closer to the customer, wherever, whichever, whichever vector you want to use. It's inspiring people by appreciating them, reinforcing your respect for them, um, and reinforcing their value. And I go into many companies and I see resignation, I see boredom, I see detachment, I see hostility, I see disrespect, I see all these things. And I know that people aren't like that, but something happens in lots of companies where, that, where there's a failure of leadership expressed as appreciation. And if that happens really consistently, or if not just appreciation, criticism, and by criticism I mean just helping somebody through something and teaching them, you know, it, it makes such an enormous difference. And when that dies, I think what dies with it is, is the potential of a culture of a company to support the creativity that it produces. So um, when I think about AKQA, we exist for two reasons. And one of the reasons we exist is to create the future for our clients. So that, as Ian said, the future inspires us. We work to inspire. And the other reason we exist is to create the next generation of leaders. And so it's, I think it, with, with absolute, you know, the amazing thing about the role you've got is you have the opportunity to create the future. And I think if, you're, you know, if, you're, if your motivation is you want to create something that's the best of its kind in the world, that's amazingly motivating and, and you'll get an immediate reaction. I think you can keep improving something and keep tweaking it and keep making it and refining it until you know, you're, you're absolutely happy with it. So I think just, just don't stop and have lots of fun while you're doing it. I think that's the important thing is people take everything so seriously to, to, you know, to a fault. 
And I think you, you produce your best work when you're enjoying it. And it's very important to create a culture where you know people are you know enjoying the work they do and and, and motivated to to you know give their give their all because they absolutely love what they do. And I, th and I think creating that environment where love for the work and respect for for, for audiences is is super important. Yeah, there are loads of people who are good at what they do. Like there are tons of people who are good at what they do. There are far fewer who love what they do. And I think. Um, and why? <laughs> it's just it kind of baffles me actually a little bit. And as long as the like Ajar said, if you and we, we the phrase we use all the time is labour of love. If what you if what you're doing is a labour of love, even if it's in a, a realm of creativity that you're not you don't know for sure, you don't know if you can do it. As long as you passionately pursue that, then that then that's amazing. You know, then what else is there? And I think the one piece of advice I'd just add to that is that one of the best ways to keep yourself inspired is to spend as much time as possible with people who are far, far smarter than you are. Because you will, you know, you will, in whatever background they're from, whatever art, whether they're artists, scientists, politicians, you know, might be controversial to call politicians, uh, you know, smarter than the, the rest of us. But uh, yeah, I've met some who are, who are absolutely amazing, and you know, that's what will help you to grow as a person. To you know, as you said, you know, standing on the the shoulders of giants. Well, is uh, we were chatting in what's called the green room, which is of course a white room. Um, <laughs> uh, as before we came in, I was just saying there are two projects that I had nothing to do with, two things that are supreme pieces of branding that I know I've never done anything as good as them. It's enormously valuable to me. I've not done anything as good as, I've not produced a name as good as his master's voice with a symbol with a dog sitting in front of a, whatever that thing Gramophone. is. Yeah, I've never done anything like that. I've never produced anything as spare and as precise and as meaningful and as singular as the Red Cross. What a fantastic, symbol it is what it says and everybody knows what it means i've never done anything like that and i it's important for me to realize that i still aspire to do something that's better than both of those <laughs> but whether i ever will or not i'm sure you know. will <laughs> so we've got time for one last quick question uh at the end hi um You've talked about kind of play and fun and playfulness and this kind of stuff. And I worked at AKQA for a couple of years and people's perception of what we did there was that we kind of sat around on bean bags, dreaming up crazy stuff and getting paid too much for it, right? And likewise, brand consultants are often criticized in the media for basically, you know, charging too much for designing a logo, say. You, Michael, defended uh, the 2012 logo when it came out. so. You could argue that the creative industries have a real image problem by people who don't understand what we do. And part of that is due to, well, not youthful thinking, but do you, I suppose, to what extent do you think the creative industries need to kind of grow up a little bit in the, in sort of in the eyes of the uh, public? What's the question? <laughs> <laughs> to what extent do you think that, uh, do, do you think the creative industries need to kind of grow up in the eyes of the public? No, I, I think that we are not taught um, advocacy. You know, advocacy is not taught in design colleges. You're not taught how to persuade someone. You're not even really taught to think. So um, there's quite a lot 
that needs to happen to improve the quality of education in the sector that we're all in. You know, the fact that it's in silos, you know, that you know, someone's trained as a graphic designer, isn't trained as a product designer, isn't tra trained as an environmental designer, isn't taught about the digital world, they're all in separate little boxes. While as when people experience brands, they don't make those distinctions at all. So um, I think we have a lot to learn about how we teach in order that we can learn better how to do what we do. And I also hope we don't grow up, otherwise my book's useless. That's, um, no, I mean, why would we? Why, I mean, I'll give you an example. Sat right here about a, f a few years ago was John Lasseter, who's the chief creative officer of Pixar and, and yeah. Disney. And he said, and in fact, it was one of the reasons I started the book, actually, because it, it just kind of sets something off. And he, pr he proudly confessed to being a big kid. You know, and he sat there, and that's why he's brought enjoyment to millions of people, um, because he's never—he is just a big kid, and it's—it's it's fantastic. I kind of hope we don't grow up. Um, and if, if you know other other industries and other organisations don't get it, then you know that's their not tough shit. Not tough shit. Yeah. <laughs> we made it this whole way without swearing, and we were talking about that back there, and you know, and it's fine. Well, I mean, I'm sit talking about being childish. I'm sitting here thinking there's something very wrong with shoe design. Why? because the bottom of my toe has been itching for two hours and you I need can't Nike. do anything about it. Nike shoes are awesome, you should get some. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I'll take you to Nike Town yeah, yeah, after it, it's still open. Good pleasure. Well, on that note, it just leaves up to me to say thank you to Giles, to Michael and to Ian and uh, to our audience. And can everyone just please give these guys a big round of applause.